Today on Something You Should Know, why are some sandwiches called subs? I'll explain that. Then a fascinating discussion on why we're here, why we're here now, and why we're here at all. When you recognize that we are the product of a series of quantum events that reach all the way back to the Big Bang, then each of the quantum events that took place could have turned out differently, yielding a world in which we would not be here. And yet we are here. Then a simple way to be more convincing and a fascinating look at the speed at which you move. What causes you to sometimes move fast and sometimes slow? You know, you will walk slower after um, having had a bad experience. Um, You will walk faster after having had a good experience. You will walk faster toward people that you care more about. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, perhaps you're eating lunch. And perhaps you're having a sandwich. And that is some interesting food. The sandwich is at least a couple of thousand years old, and it got its name in the 1700s from the Earl of Sandwich in England. But the term sandwich wasn't widely used in the U.S. until the late 1800s. The average American eats 193 sandwiches per year, and the all-time favorite is the ham sandwich. By the time the typical student graduates from high school, he or she will have eaten 1,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Food historians believe that the grilled cheese sandwich got its start in the 1920s, when sliced bread and American cheese were both introduced. Originally, it was an open face sandwich, and it was broiled. It wasn't until the 1960s that the top piece of bread was added, and it was grilled in the pan. During World War II, a deli in New London, Connecticut, got a call from a nearby U.S. Navy base. They placed an order for 500 Hero sandwiches. From that day forward, anytime a customer ordered a Hero sandwich, 
The employees at the deli called it a sub. The nickname spread, and the term sub is now used all over the country. And that is something you should know. It's said that we humans are the only species that can contemplate our own existence and our own death. We know we will die one day, and knowing that drives a desire in us to make our lives matter. So we strive to live as long as we can and do things that will make a difference and to find meaning and joy in life given who we are, where we are, and the time in which we live. And that's what we're going to talk about today with Brian Green. And Brian's one of my favorite guests because every time he comes on here, every time I talk to him, he always makes me think about things I hadn't thought before. Brian is a theoretical physicist, mathematician, professor at Columbia University. He's done a lot of TV shows, authored several books, and his latest book is called Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Hey, Brian. Great to be here. So usually you write books about the universe and astronomy and things, and and this topic is completely different. So, So explain how you're coming at this. There is a long-standing realization that our own mortality has a profound impact on how we live our lives, on the choices that we make and the undertakings that we seek and the achievements that we set ourselves. And within that, there's a equally long and highly related tradition of valuing those things that last, those things that are not mortal, those things that will be with us for time immemorial. And that is what I mean by the lore of eternity. Our psyche is set up in such a way that we value and place a great deal of emphasis on things that will last. And we do that because we, we want to leave a legacy? Partly, certainly. I think there are different answers for different people. And among the reasons, of course, that we value eternity is that we do want our lives to matter in the sense that our lives have an impact. And there's a sense in which the longer the impact, the more we feel that we've had a life that was well-lived, that we've had a life of consequence. Well, there is the perspective that a lot of people, I guess, take is that, you know, it doesn't matter much that, you know, we're here and one day we're gone and, you know, that's the end of that. So none of this really matters. Coming to the conclusion that nothing matters is a, is a direction that, that doesn't resonate with me at all, especially, and this I think is the more important point, when you take the perspective of the physicists, when you take the cosmological perspective, you recognize that on cosmic scales, not human scales, not planetary scales, not stellar scales, but on cosmic scales, everything ultimately does fall apart. Everything ultimately does dissolve. Everything does ultimately wither away. This is basically the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and action. And when you see things in that context, then the statement that you made in some sense can have an even greater pull because no matter what impact an individual might have, say, on the lives of those around them or even on their progeny or even in subsequent generations, ultimately it all goes away. 
So that can certainly leave you with a sense of it not mattering at all. <laughs> now, that is not the conclusion that I draw, but I can certainly understand the chain of reasoning that leads one to that perspective. So given what you just said, what conclusion do you draw? You know, I've gone on a journey of the sort that we're describing. There was a time when all of my emphasis was looking toward the future. It was, you know, trying to work out some new understanding of unified theories of physics that might be everlasting. It might reveal the deepest truths of the world. And that, to me, was where value and purpose and meaning derive. That's really where I was as a as a younger person, as a younger physicist. But frankly, coming to grips with the implications of physics itself, which is what I just described, that everything ultimately does fall apart, had a profound impact on me. And it shifted my perspective to one where I now take a view that's quite familiar to anybody who meditates or who's done philosophical reading or has listen to mindfulness teachers through the ages. I mean, my perspective has really shifted from longing for that receding future to a focus on the now, the focus on the present and the recognition that there's deep wonder and a deep sense of gratitude. I don't have any other word to use than gratitude, A, a deep gratitude for being here at all. When you recognize that we are the product of a series of quantum events that reach all the way back to the Big Bang and stretch from that distant moment in time until our own birth. And each of the quantum events that took place could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this, yielding a world in which we would not be here. And yet we are here against those astounding odds. And more than that, we're not just here, we can do things, we can create beauty, we can illuminate mystery, we can experience wonder right here, right now. And that really is where my sense of meaning has shifted due to these cosmological considerations. And when you look at all those random events that had to happen in the way they happened for us to be here, Do you as a scientist say that's amazingly interesting science or do you start to think maybe there's a bigger thing going on here? Well, you can't help but wonder about a bigger thing. And unlike some of my colleagues who scoff at these ideas, scoff at religion and scoff at sort of a spiritual look at the world, my view is that's a deep part of our own heritage and it's a beautiful part in which we have tried to not only understand the external world, and that's where science really does a great job, but we've also tried to understand the inner world of conscious experience, the inner world of being a living system walking around on a rock that's orbiting a nondescript star in the suburbs of an ordinary galaxy. And so while I don't take the perspective that you need any religious or something bigger, if you will, to explain the external world, I think physics does a really great job at that and will continue to do an ever greater job as our understanding refines. I do have a great deal of value and a great deal of respect for the inner journey that our species has undergone for millennia, and that often has involved the idea of something bigger. When you look at the way humans are from your perspective, are we 
amazingly special? Because it seems like we are in the sense that, I mean, the world could have been inhabited by bugs and worms where nobody really, no creatures thought about things or tried to make things better. They just tried to survive and multiply. But we do more than that. And and are we special, do you think? I'd like to frame it in, in, in this way. There are three momentous events that are part of our past. The origin, the beginning of the universe, the origin, the beginning of life, the origin, the beginning of consciousness. And so we are among those collections of particles that not only exist in the universe, that not only are living systems within the universe, but are conscious living systems within the universe. We're not unique in that way. There are other conscious beings that walk the surface of our planet and who knows what happens out there in the wider cosmos. But certainly the quality of self-awareness, the quality of the inner voice that we can hear chattering between our ears and our own awareness that we are aware to our ability to turn the lens, the spotlight of observation inward and examine what happens within ourselves as opposed to just the external world, that's deeply special. I'm not saying it's special in the sense that it is necessarily unique, but there are certain kinds of questions that at least on planet Earth, we are the only species that I believe can contemplate. We're the only species that can contemplate our own mortality. And some will immediately fire back and say, well, come on. I mean, there are other species like elephants that mourn their dead. And and there are examples of that in the animal kingdom. And of course, it's not the case that we're the only species that can react to the loss of a member of our group as we can, as elephants can, as other species can as well. But I just think it quite unlikely that elephants are walking around for a lot of their life, contemplating meaning, purpose, contemplating their own mortality and wondering why they're here at all. I think we are unique in the ability to contemplate certain kinds of questions, and that is quite special. Yeah, well, I I like to think I'm special. Brian Green is my guest. He is a theoretical physicist and author of the book, Until the End of Time, Mind Matter and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Brian, you know, I sometimes think that not being able to contemplate your own mortality would be nice. That, you know, that ignorance, that if, if you can't contemplate your own death, you don't waste time contemplating your own death because there isn't anything you can do about it anyway. Well, it can do some good. And uh, the flip side is I don't think that we really have the capacity not to contemplate it, even if not explicitly, then certainly implicitly. I mean, you know, some of the greatest poetry, the greatest literature, the greatest music has arisen from members of our species grappling with these deep questions of existence. And the deep questions of existence take a different flavor if we were immortal. They do in a very deep and not necessarily positive way. So, so I think there is great value in, in contemplating the reality of the world. But the remark that I was also making, you know, there's this a great body of scientific evidence now, and it really does come from a group of researchers who I have great respect for, these terror management theorists, who've, who've accumulated a great deal of experimental psychological data which shows that we human beings, even if we don't think that knowledge of our own mortality is affecting how we behave and what we do, it actually is in a very deep and measurable way. So however much you might want to have the blissful ignorance of not thinking about your own finite nature, we're all aware of it, it's always there, and it does deeply impact us. And so when the dust all settles on this, what, what's your big aha, what's your big takeaway, what's your big like thing you want people to get? To my mind, the, the most important lesson and the real theme that I want people to take away is to be able to see their lives within a much different narrative, a much larger narrative, a much longer narrative, and one in which they are a vital, if infinitesimal part. And the ability to find meaning and value and purpose within that narrative, to me, adds a certain kind of reverence for life that I've not been able to achieve in any other way. You know, when you can actually see yourself as part of this large narrative and you take it in fully, I feel that it has a dramatic impact on the way you think about your place in the cosmic order. But when you say, when you, say you know, f- to help people find meaning or to find their place, I, I, it's a little confusing to know, you know, what does that mean? Well, I mean, does it mean just whatever you want it to mean? To find it does your- in a sense. It does in a sense, because the last thing that I would ever say is that there is a unique purpose, a unique means of finding value and meaning. Rather, it sets a framework within which you are given latitude to think about your life in a different way, to no longer think about the typical things that I think many of us, even as a knee-jerk reaction, even without thinking about it, do focus upon, which is the idea of legacy. It is the idea of what we will leave behind. That way of thinking about things when 
you shine the bright light of cosmological thinking becomes something that no longer is satisfying, no longer holds the weight that it otherwise would. And it frees the mind. At least it has freed my mind and certainly many who have I spoken to. It frees the mind to look at your life in a different way. And again, the way you look at your life is what? Is just b- the, the joy of being here now rather than trying to leave some huge legacy that will, will rot and die anyway? Yeah, that's definitely part of it, but I can even be more specific because now if we talk about me as an individual, I can pinpoint with greater precision the things that do give me that sense of value at the moment. And it is thinking about physics. It is thinking about the fundamental laws, but it's not in the context of needing to refashion those laws or leave my own personal imprint on those laws. It's the mere joy of thinking about the deep insights that we as a species have been able to come to. I mean, when I look at Einstein's equations of the general theory of relativity, R mu nu minus a half G mu nu R equals eight pi G over C to the fourth T mu nu. When I look at that equation, it fills me with awe. It fills me with wonder. It fills me with the kind of reaction that I have when looking at a great Rodin sculpture. It fills me with the same kind of sensation that I get when listening to Brahms' Third Symphony. And it's just a recognition of how spectacular it is that a mere collection of particles encased in a structure that we call the human body is able to create these things. It's able to figure these things out. It's able to appreciate the deep structure of the world. And, and that, to me, is where the, the value comes from. So it's, it's more or less, or <laughs> I don't know, you tell me, it, it's more or less that you, you're just living in awe of the moment, rather than trying to find some big meaning in the future. Absolutely. And it's a it's a familiar message. So as I said at the outset, it is the kind of way of looking at the world that anybody who has engaged in meditation or mindfulness teachings, mindfulness thinking, is quite familiar with. It's an idea that we can trace through the philosophical literature. There have been schools of thought that have been devoted to this. The novelty for me and and for many people that have written to me after reading my book, the novelty is the way that we get to this perspective. And we get to this perspective not by focusing upon human beings per se, not by focusing upon life on planet Earth per se, but rather by focusing upon the totality of time from the beginning to the end. And the argument is that by placing human life, by placing solar systems and stars and galaxies within that cosmological unfolding, that is where the shift in attention to the now emerges. And then that shift to the attention of now emerges in your mind, and and it changes your life and your behavior how? In, in ways that are both manifest and subtle. It's a different way of evaluating things that happen in a, in a day-to-day way. 
And it's a different way of contemplating the big turning points in life. I mean, look, you know, my um, my mother died June 6th from the virus. And that was a, a moment that I, in some sense, lived in terror of since I was a young child. I mean, like most kids, right? The most terrifying thing that I could imagine as a young kid was was losing my mom. And certainly as I got older, I matured and became adjusted to the fact that the natural order of things was that she would leave this earth before me. But I was still often deeply terrified of what life would be like on my own, so to speak, without a, a parent. And uh, spending time over you know, the course of a couple decades thinking about things in the way that we've been discussing gradually shifted my view on what it means to be mortal and what it means to lose someone because we are mortal. And it had a profound impact on my own reaction to the loss of my mom. So in, in again, in ways manifest and subtle, this perspective can have a deep impact. And the perspective that changed made it more acceptable, made it less painful? What, 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 so what is it? You know, it? It's, it's a good question. I'm not sure if I would describe it in exactly that way, but it certainly allowed me to cope in, in a different way. It allowed me to see her life and my life and the life of my, my wife and my kids and my family within a different rubric. And with a rubric that is more focused on now as opposed to that receding future I made reference to before. And that, yeah, it definitely changed my way of reacting. Since the title of your book is Until the End of Time, it kind of begs the question, will time end? Will eternity go on forever? Or will eternity one day stop? It's an unknown, certainly an unknown question, a, a deep question, but whether that is ultimately a finite duration into the future or an infinite duration, nobody knows. And you're absolutely right. It is a very hard concept to grasp because in everyday life, in common experience, and this goes all the way back to our earliest forebears walking along the African savanna. Everything that we encounter in the world around us has a beginning, has a middle, has an end. It exists for a finite duration, the things of everyday experience. And so we naturally try to use that same rubric in thinking about time itself. That time has a beginning, there's a stretch in the middle, and that time ultimately will come to an end. But that extrapolation is not necessarily justified. So we may need a different mindset and a different language to think about time itself. Time itself may have no beginning. Time itself may have no end. Time may just be. Again, we don't know if that's true, but it's certainly a possibility that is compatible with all we know. Well, I always enjoy our conversations. You always make me think in a way that I haven't thought before, and hopefully you've done that for, for everyone listening as well. Brian Green has been my guest. He is a theoretical physicist, a mathematician, professor at Columbia University, and his latest book is called Until the End of Time, 
Mind Matter and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Mike. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Here is something you've likely never thought about before, but it's really interesting. How you move is directly associated with how you feel and how you think. When you're happy and excited, you tend to move more quickly. When you're sad and depressed, you move slower. And here's something interesting. People with Parkinson's disease generally move pretty slow. But in many cases, they don't have to move slow. Most could probably move pretty quickly if the house was on fire or they were threatened by something. So why is that? There's something going on in your brain that determines how you move and the speed you move. And here to discuss that and explain why it's important is Reza Shadmer. He is a professor of biomedical engineering and neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and author of the book Vigor, Neuroeconomics of Movement Control. Hi, Reza. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. So I didn't know this was a thing until I saw it, this whole idea of vigor and movement and the brain and all this. I didn't know this was an area of study. I didn't know any of this. So clearly it is a thing. So what is it? What is the thing? What, what is vigor? What are you talking about? My story really begins uh, when I was younger. I was uh, at the airport waiting for my wife and the plane was late. So I was sitting outside the security area and I couldn't help but notice how different um, people moved when they came out of the security area. You know, if you had your uh, family waiting for you, the person would inevitably run toward the other person. But if there was just a, you know, limo driver waiting for them with a sign that had their name on it, they would just, you know, walk to them normally. So it was curious how the value, it seemed, that the person assigned to their destination was influencing the vigor with which they moved to that goal. And so as soon as you say that, okay, I get it. I, I understand that, you know, when you, when you land at the airport, you know, people will run towards you because they haven't seen you in a while. But why is this? Everybody knows that. So why is this yeah. important? There's a whole field of economics that tries to understand how you make decisions based on the value that you assign to your options. And the insight that came from that simple observation at the airport was that maybe we don't need to ask you whether you prefer A or B. Maybe all we need to do is how you move toward A versus how you move toward B. Well, what's really interesting to me about this when I started to think about it is, so if I meet someone at the airport and I'm very excited to see them and I run to, to hug them, I think that's a conscious choice I'm making. I'm deciding to run to them. But why? What? I'm, I'm going to hug them four seconds sooner than if I just walk to them. The, the, the benefit is not great. So why did I run? This is where the story links to dopamine and Parkinson's disease. How so? My good friend, John Krakauer, is a neurologist who um, studies Parkinson. And many years ago, he was mentioning to me how in PD, um, of course, there is what's called bradykinesia. You move slow. But it isn't that the patients are unable to 
move fast. Uh, if the alarm bell rings, the patient who was bedridden might be able to get up and walk out the uh, walk out the room. So it isn't an inability to move. It is almost as if the economic cost of movement has been elevated. And so you're just unwilling to spend the effort to make those movements. But if one could figure out how to provide you with the incentive, you could make the movement. So if someone has Parkinson's disease, is it a conscious choice not to move or not to move quickly? Is it, do they realize I'm not, do they realize what they're doing or not doing? Yeah, I don't think it's a conscious choice. Much the same as when you see someone you love, you reflexively run toward them. Um, it's just, it changes, changes your state when you are surprised by a good thing. It's, it's, it's the same thing as after you've had a bad experience, you walk away slowly. It affects your mood. It affects also how you move. It's just because it's influencing your brain, and that, that influence is affecting how you move. And the ideas have been, by looking at your movements, can we understand the influence of these rewards, efforts, and how it's making you um, feel the way you do. If I'm a, a healthy person who's lying on the couch and relaxed and I don't want to get up, I could get up. Like you say, if the alarms went off, I'd get up and I'd walk out the door. I'd maybe run out the door. But I don't want to get up and getting up seems hard. Is that kind of the same thing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very nice way to put it, that the reward associated with the goal of getting up is simply not worth the effort for me to spend it. When we run to someone that we see that we haven't seen in a long time at the airport, why do we run? What, what's the benefit? I mean, why do we not just walk faster? Why, what's the trigger? It's a wonderful, really, that's a central question. What is good about that? And, you know, in biology, we only understand what is good from some evolutionary standpoint. You know, why is it better for the organism to spend the effort if there is greater reward at the end? And and, um, the idea is that you are attempting to spend energy in order to buy time. And um, what's good about that is that there have been some experiments done in um, animals that looks at um, the relationship between how much reward they get and how much effort they have to spend to get that reward. And basically, animals who um, can get the reward relatively cheaply without spending effort, well, they get to have uh, you know, more, more babies and they get to live a longer life. So they, team, they basically seem to, um, it, it's beneficial for us to, to be able to get the good stuff without having to spend a whole lot of effort. Now, when we do spend effort, what we're doing is that we are shortening the time to getting reward, which suggests that the, the currency that the brain is trying to improve upon is some rate, which is how much reward per second am I getting? And if I can get that reward sooner, well, then what I'm doing is improving my rate of reward. So it isn't just that you get to hug somebody two seconds quicker than you would have if you walked. You, it's, it's much deeper than that. There is this duality between 
between reward, how much good there is out there, and effort, how much effort I'm willing to spend. And, and both of them seem have something to do with this interesting neurotransmitter, dopamine, that gets released both when I get something good and when I'm about to spend a bit of effort. Um, just this classic IKEA effect, the idea that if you built it, somehow it means something more to you. You, you wouldn't sell it as cheaply as something that uh, was perhaps given to you. It goes back to the notion of dollar earned is better than dollar given. I, I wonder if it is the fact that when we are spending effort, we are enjoying these neurotransmitters, dopamine, that we tend to get when we get reward. And so somehow that item that we spent effort on becomes valuable to us. Isn't it when I build my IKEA furniture, isn't it just that sense of accomplishment that I finish the job that feels so good? Actually, it's the actual expenditure of the effort that it, that seems to, re, you know, release this neurotransmitter. So, when mice are given free food, as opposed to having to go spend uh, time pressing levers to get that same food, they end up valuing the food that they got after pressing levers, even though they spend more effort to get it, more than the um, food that they got for free. So knowing all this, what do we do now? So now that this looks like this connection is there, so again, I guess I've asked it before, but so what do we do with it? So what? So it's interesting to observe, but now what? There's a concern, and the concern is this. You know, with uh, the fact that cameras are everywhere now, I, I think in the distant, not so distant future, it might be pretty easy for these cameras to measure our movements in its minute ways. So not just how we're walking, but how we're moving our eyes. And if it was possible to measure movements that well, then I worry that the data would reveal how we value things that we are looking at. And, you know, it would potentially provide information about this dark secret inside of us, which is how much more do we like this to that. And, and let's, let's put aside eye movements. Let's look at your reaching. Let's, let's look at how fast you reach toward some candy bars. And um, by measuring how rapidly you begin your movement when you're shown a candy bar and how fast you reach toward it, again, you are able to have a reasonably good guess at which candy bar this person likes more. But aren't there a lot of other factors, like how hungry you are when you last had one? I mean, it, aren't there a lot of other things at play here? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Your history matters a lot. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, you will walk slower after um, having had a bad experience. Um, you will walk faster after having had a good experience. You will walk faster toward people that you care more about. So the state that you're in and your history will certainly influence. It seems that so many things affect how you move. I mean, if you're tired, you're going to move slower. If you're, at least in pre pandemic days, if you're walking down the street in New York City, you're probably walking a lot faster than if you're walking down a street in a rural town in Vermont, because everyone around you 
on the sidewalk in New York City is walking fast, so you walk fast. The first indication of this was uh, a paper that appeared in the 70s where um, the authors went to New York, went to various cities around the world, and measured how fast people walked. And um, just as you say, what they found was that in places like New York, places where there was greater population, there seemed to be this vigor. People walked faster in those places on average. And the interpretation that they had was that, well, maybe this is some kind of an avoidance that people have. Maybe crowds make it so that you want to avoid this density and get to your destination as as early as possible. Another uh, interpretation is the following. There are, of course, many things that affect how you walk, temperature, your fatigue, various things. But if one could normalize for all those things, you might still find that people in certain places, New York, they tend to walk faster than a small town. And you might ask, why is that? And, and we don't know the answer. But one thing that is the case that correlates with speed of walking in various cities is something to do with availability of opportunities, meaning that, again, that concept of how much reward is out there for you in this environment that you're at. And in animal studies, what's found is that when you are in a rich environment where there are trees full of fruit, the animal moves faster than in a poor environment where there are only a few things to enjoy. So we don't know why people walk faster in certain cities than villages, but what we do know is that the density of reward makes it so that the brain will basically see opportunity and want to spend the effort to get as much reward as possible. Well, I still think one of the reasons you walk fast in New York is because everybody else is walking fast, and, and if you didn't, they'd walk all over you. But also, I mean, there are other things that affect your movements as you age. And older people, elderly people move slower because, well, because they're, I guess, because they're older. It used to be thought that maybe that's because there's decay and associated with uh, neuromuscular components of our body. Maybe the muscles are becoming a little bit weaker, which they certainly are. But the new idea is maybe there's a change in that effort-reward balance um, because we do know that dopamine declines as people age. And so this question of why do we move slower is of interest because it's not just we walk slower. Our saccadic eye movements are also become slower. So is it something to do with this economic balance between how rewarding we see our destination and how much effort we're about to spend. Again, this comes back to Parkinson's disease and sort of the extreme of um, uh, a dopamine disorder, which is to have very little dopamine. There you see extremely slow movements. And so is aging a little bit related to what's taking place uh, with the decline in the dopamine system? That's an open question. Yeah, well, couldn't it just also be aches and pains? Uh, You know, it's, it's a little harder to move when you get older. What's interesting is that the way you move your eyes, they don't have aches and pains, right? But even they slow down. And so, and so does driving and everything else. And I remember Jerry yeah. Seinfeld used to yeah. do a thing in his act about why you're close to the end. Why not speed up? Get you know, <laughs> why slow down? Exactly. What a beautiful point. Um, remember, I guess what I was mentioning about how 
you're spending effort to buy time when you move fast. And you know what happens as we grow older, we become more patient. I, I have this image of visiting Moscow in the time of Gorbachev. Um, I was just a graduate student. And I remember those long lines, people waiting for food. And invariably, the people that were waiting in lines were elderly. And I, and I think that our patience and the, 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 you know, as we age, we become more patient in our decision making. It's thought that what that means is that time, passage of time, doesn't discount reward as fast as when you were younger. The idea being that, um, you know, an hour isn't that long of a time to wait when you're elderly, but whereas an hour may be too long to wait when you're a teenager. And so maybe that also is related to the dopamine system and how it evaluates passage of time, which then would influence movement. So has anybody tried, you said in the beginning that Parkinson's patients, for example, move slow, not because they have to, but because they choose to, because the reward for moving quick isn't there. What if you create the reward? You find out what it is that delights them and say, if you'll get up and move faster than you've ever moved, you can have, you know, chocolate cake or whatever it is. Does that work? There are experiments like this where um, monetary reward is presented or a sense of urgency is placed. And I'll give you an example. So say that there's a ball that you place on a table and you ask the patient to pick it up. They will reach slowly. Now, let's put the ball in motion so it's moving. Let's have it move toward the edge of the table. Make it so that if you don't reach for it, quickly, the ball's going to fall off the table. There you will see that they will move faster. Because they can. Because they can, and because the consequence of moving slow here are a loss. The ball's going to fall to the ground, and so there's this sense of urgency for the movement when there's going to be something unpleasant that might take place if you don't do it. Um, And then they can move faster. So it, it there is, you know, this economic decision-making process going on in the brain. And I think it's subconscious that what's the, what's the amount of effort I should spend to do this task? And nothing's going to happen if I reach slow if the ball is just sitting there. But if I reach slow and the ball is moving and it's about to fall to the ground, then there's going to be a negative consequence. Let's try to get it and prevent it. The thing about this that really captured my attention in the beginning was what you said about it at an airport, you know, what? Why do we run to people at an airport? And, and it doesn't make logical sense. It's just, it's an expression of emotion, and it's driven by emotion. One of the things I tell my students is, um, if you want to know something about how someone cares about you, you should probably pay attention to how they move towards you. Well, that, that's a great idea, and that could be very, very telling. Well, this has been great. I've been talking with Reza Shadmer. He is a professor of biomedical engineering and neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And his book is called Vigor, Neuroeconomics of Movement Control. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Reza. Think about how many times today you've tried to convince someone to do something whether it's trying to get your kids to brush their teeth or get a company to hire you or, or sell somebody on some idea you've got. 
There's one important element of communication that we all need to understand, and that is this. People don't really care about you or what you're selling until they understand what's in it for them. Self-interest is the one thing that will motivate people to act above everything else, and research has proven it time and time again. This is according to Mark Magnaca, author of the book So What? Here's a great example. AT&T spent over $3 billion trying to promote the picture phone back in the early 70s. It never really got off the ground. Why? Well, the only what's in it for them was that consumers could see each other when they talk on the phone and other people could see them. The problem was that nobody really cared. Since they saw nothing really in it for them, consumers ignored it. Figuring out what's in it for the other person will make the job of convincing them to do something a lot easier. And that is something you should know. Our audience is growing, and you could help us grow it a little bit more. Just share this podcast with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.